In this episode of 9-2-I Talks, the artist Cause discusses his process, his influences, his approach to creating art and merchandise, his collaborations with global brands, and more, with Sam Shakir. Cause's prolific body of influential work straddles the worlds of art and design to include paintings, murals, graphic and product design, street art, and large-scale sculptures. The conversation was recorded on November 21, 2019, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Well, uh, thank you everyone for coming tonight, and uh, I'd like to extend a big thank you to the staff of the Y. They really went above and beyond in making tonight happen. Uh, it really, there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes, so uh, maybe a quick round of applause for everyone at the Y who made tonight possible. I'd also like to thank Cause for being here this evening. Uh, we really appreciate it. So maybe one more round of applause for our special guest. <laughs> and we're done, thank you. And we're done, thank you. For <laughs> so, so to start things off, you, you did not come from an artistic family, a family of artists. So where did your interest in art begin? And then also, where, where does the name Cause come from? We have to start there, that's kind of the beginning. You know, I think it's always something, I, I used art kind of as a crutch. Um, I always gravitated towards it in elementary school and, you know, it's just sort of a, a way to pass time and kind of like, you know, I was never really motivated in sports or anything else and I kind of navigated relationships and friendships through art. And the name cause is, just comes from straight graffiti. So it has no special meaning, there's no acronym, it's... No, it's just, um, you know, I, I always liked the way the letters worked within each other, like how they kind of fit together. And, you know, if you're doing your name several times, like I did, you kind of think about this and think about the, how, how it looks structurally and how it sounds. It's a great, great reason. So we have some great images that we're going to share tonight. Um, to kind of narrate our story. In, in 1996, you graduated from the School of Visual Arts and were working in commercial animation. Uh, when, when did you decide to make the jump and become a full-time independent artist and leave, leave that career? You know, when I got out of school, um, my first job was in animation, and you know, I kind of eventually got worse and worse at that to the point where I thought that they were gonna <laughs> fire me, but instead they told me I could work from my house. And, uh, <laughs> That's and, how it starts. Yeah, so I, I, thought, I thought I was getting called in to get fired, and actually I got a bonus and, and was now able to work from my house. So I, I was like, oh, I was kind of wishing I got fired. Um, <laughs> and also, you know, at the time there was this, this grant that I won, and, and I just decided, you know, little by little, I kind of like cut the strings of security away and, and sort of shifted into um, doing stuff for myself. You know, I always... I was, I've never been like afraid of risk, and I thought, you know, the sooner I could plunge into it, the better. Got it. And, and coming back to the name for a minute, Cause, do you prefer to be called Cause or by your other name? I mean, whatever you remember, um, Cause, <laughs> Brian Donnelly, you know, I meet... I want to make sure I get it right. I have friends' parents that still call me Cause, and then, you know, it just doesn't... I'll take whatever I get. Well, I think we lost our slide here. Hopefully someone can get that back up there. Maybe I pressed the wrong button. There we go. So I think this image is really amazing. Uh, if I painted the side of a train and took a picture standing on top of it, my parents would say, are you nuts? What are you doing on that train? Get down from there. Was your work, early work, ever dangerous when you were doing graffiti? And, and how did you get on the train? I mean, 
That was actually, that was, we went back the day after. And a lot of times when you paint, you go back in daylight and you photograph it. Um, this was like in the middle of nowhere, Jersey, and I think the highest risk was the mosquitoes that were... <laughs> Those will get you. Yeah, and so, yeah, me and my friend John Nace, um, he painted the train next to me, and I, I, you know, went up for a photo, and then he did a very similar photo. And, um, in the end, yeah, I, I learned very fast, you know, just from looking at sort of the generations before me in graffiti with how ephemeral it is. You really only have the photography, so I always was very keen on getting good documentation of the work. And so never had any accidents or dangerous moments out there? I mean, there's danger, but you just sort of like, you know, you sort of weigh the risk versus reward, and it always seemed very, the, the risk seemed very silly. That's well said. Let's see if we can get to the next image here. Starting in 1993, I believe, you were painting over advertisements in bus and phone booth cases. How'd you even get the keys? Um, I started by painting large billboards, and I think that just has to do with growing up in Jersey City and having just easy access to it and, you know, with the amount of highways. and um, It just, I was interested in it graphically. I, I liked advertising. I liked the, you know, I started to think about how advertising and graffiti have similarities. And um, starting in 96 is when I moved to Manhattan, and I kind of lost my access to billboards and started to paint over phone booths and bus shelters. And originally, another artist from San Francisco, Barry McGee, gave me a tamper-proof bolt to get into a phone booth. And then I just kind of became obsessed with breaking into things. <laughs> um, As one so, does. Yeah, so I started to figure out how to get into the master locks. Like on the bus shelter, you can see on the two bottoms, there's these master locks. But I realized if you can make a key for one, it opened up the whole avenue. So, it was New York security for you. Yeah, exactly. I, I think times, it's a little different now. But... Um, and no, then I just, no phone booths. Yeah, exactly. That, that's one thing. Um, but also when I was in different countries, I just got really interested in being like in a new place but doing very familiar things. Mm -hmm. and, and would you paint them on site or you would take them home? No, they'd be painted. I, I would go and I would take them from a neighborhood that I, didn't, I wasn't interested in putting stuff back in. Mm -hmm. So I would <laughs> empty out that whole territory <laughs> and take them and I'd paint them. I was living in the Lower East Side at the moment at that time, and I would take them and put them in my route to work, and, you know, things that I would see, like, on the routes of the bar that I like to go to, or, you know. And was, was there a message behind it, or how did you come up with the idea to do this for the first time? I mean, it really just stemmed from when I was doing the sort of more traditional graffiti letter, letter form work. Um, when I started to paint over the advertisements, I started to think more about the larger audience and how can I communicate to people that aren't, that kind of don't understand the nuances of graffiti because mm -hmm. I felt like that was, you know, it, it's more like a lot of people see graffiti and they don't really, I see a wall and I could, you know, pick out, oh, this person's from here, this is this, you know, but a lot of people just see a blur. Mm -hmm. And I felt like in working with the ads, I needed to kind of just get into more sort of broader imaging. Is, is any of your graffiti still up in New York, or has it kind of been painted over in the years? I think for the most part, it's, it's mostly gone. Mostly gone. Too bad. Yeah. Maybe, maybe there's, you can go back out? Too bad, I guess. Depends on who you're asking. So in, in the end, do you, think it, uh, do you think it helped the brands that you were painting over, say it were an ad for a given clothing company? I don't think I would have contributed to selling another product for any of those <laughs> brands. But, um, but in hindsight, I could, you know, at the time, I really thought, like, oh, God, if, this, if whoever finds out, you know, that would be like, I'd be getting sued or getting in trouble. And sure. 
And then later you learn that like brands, they don't, they just want attention. And they take it any way they get it. <laughs> so eventually you were painting over ads not only in New York, but San Francisco, London, and even Mexico City. Uh, travel is going to be a theme throughout your, your career. Uh, how important was travel to your early career? I think you said, you told me uh, that you learned about geography from trading photos. Maybe you could share a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, when I was still living with my parents, um, a friend of mine had a graffiti magazine called Undercover. And so a lot of kids used to write in and send photos to it. And whoever sent in better photos, then, you know, we would start trading photos with them. So I'd send... You know, I'd take my camera and walk around Washington Heights, Bronx, any, anywhere there was good graph, and take photos, not just of my work, but of all artists, you know, the ones that I liked. And I'd make packets and send them out, and so I'd be trading photos with kids in Germany and Spain, and um, it really just sort of got me interested in the bigger picture and kind of where can I go. And That's great. When you traveled, you would have new friends in those Exactly. Cities. I mean, first time out of the country was in, in 96, and it was to do a graph, and, um, you know, I'd immediately linked up with kids who, who I was familiar with before I got there. Almost a pre-internet social media you had going. Yeah, definitely. Um, no, I know. I remember when, when, we, when first like, graph message boards started, mm -hmm. I think everybody was just scared to even write on them. Sure, it was yeah. early. Exactly. So in 1997, it was right after you graduated school, you went to Japan. Tell us a little bit about that trip. I understand how you came to your to get your ticket was pretty interesting. Where you landed was a little bit interesting. It didn't, didn't go as smoothly as you might have thought. It wasn't unsmooth. It was, um, <laughs> no, it was, a great, it was a great trip. But, you know, so in, I was going to School of Visual Arts at the time, and a friend of mine's brother offered to bring me to, to Japan in exchange um, for a painting. So I gave, I gave him a small painting, and he gave me a ticket. It's a good trade. Yeah, definitely. Um, at the time, it was a good trade for me. <laughs> and so I thought I was staying in Tokyo, but it turned out he, he lived about an hour and a half outside of Tokyo in like this pig farm area. <laughs> so I got to go into Tokyo maybe two nights out of the week. So you thought you were going to Tokyo and you ended up. I fully on a thought, pig farm. I just assumed, like, oh, yeah, yeah, same thing, you know. <laughs> and then, I, I mean, yeah. Tell, tell us a little bit about some of the people that you met uh, in Japan who had a real really large impact on your career as the years went on? Yeah, I mean, I went originally just because I was excited to go to Japan. Like, every, who doesn't want to go to Japan when they're younger? Um, but then, I, you know, I met a lot of people in streetwear that I continue to work with, like, to this day. And, you know, the first sort of company I started working with was this company, Hectic. And it just seemed like a really inspiring place. There was a lot of people that were, you know, similar in age that were just super ambitious and productive and... So I came, came back to New York, like, how do I get back there? You know, I just want to get into work and do things. How long did you spend when you were over there? I was only there for a week. No, no, two weeks. Yeah. And then... And I never, there's this, there's, like, people have this idea that I've lived in Japan. I've never lived in Japan. The longest I've ever been there was two weeks. But I've gone about, you know, 40, 50 times. Wow. So, so you've got some good airline miles. A little bit, yeah. So... Where and when was the first time you painted the skull and crossed out eyes image, and, and what does it mean? You can see it on this billboard in the, in the lower left corner. Funny you ask that question as yeah. we sit in front of this picture. What a coincidence. Um, that right there is the first time that I painted a skull and crossbone. And it, my friend TD, there was another billboard like right here that he was painting, and um, he was just taking too long. So <laughs> I had finished my piece and he was still painting. 
And so I started to paint these imagery on the right and left of it just to kind of kill time. And, and that was it. I still would have been scared of falling, but that's just me. Yeah, no, the ledge is like that. You're fine. <laughs> plenty, plenty of room. Yeah. In 1999, let's see if we can get to the next slide here. Oh, I just noticed there's a screen right there. I don't there have to go. turn around. You don't have to turn around. Okay. In 1999, you did your first collaboration with a Japanese clothing company called Bounty Hunter to make toys that you named Companion. My first question is, where, where did that name come from? Um, well, Companion, I just thought when I saw him, that was his name. <laughs> you know, I, it, just, it just felt right to him. And um, with Bounty Hunter, I met him through, you know, originally, like, the people I met in Japan were through a friend of mine's stash. He was doing work there, and he introduced me, you know, through Hectic. I met Bounty Hunter, and, and the whole sort of, like, Harajuku streetwear world is very incestuous and small. And so in that first trip, for the first two trips, I got to meet a lot of, a lot of like, pretty much all the players in that world. Great. So t tell us a little bit more about this toy. How did, how did it come to pass? Were there many trial versions beforehand? No, this was it. Um, you know, it just happened when I, after I was painting over the phone booths. And when Bounty Hunter, when I realized, or they invited me to make a toy, at first I didn't, I didn't even think twice about it. I was like, I'm not, I don't want to make a toy, what I make. <laughs> and then I started to think about, like, well, this could be a great opportunity to sort of see my work in 3D and... Mm -hmm. I was always interested in sculpture, and then I, you know, at the same time, I was looking at like what the pop artists did with additions, and I thought maybe this is a great way that my work could disseminate. And um, so I kind of just took the strategy that I was doing, painting over advertising, mm -hmm. and applied it to to a three D form. And how were you selling them in the in the early days? And then I know it changes a little bit later. You know, instead of taking payment on the first toy, I just took product. I just took a you know, bunch of the addition. And um, I went to a new museum and did them on consignment. You know, I, they took three and then six. <laughs> and, you know, it's, I went to Paris to Colette and they started selling the work. And um, just different, you know, anyone I could find that would take it on consignment. I mean, it's a pretty, like, you got to be really mean not to take it on consignment. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, but then so. in, in 2002, you launched a website. How did that change yeah, that was actually, so before that I was like, you know, bringing product to store and they would tell me when they sold it or maybe not. And, you know, you get paid whenever. <laughs> and, um, and then 2002 I started my own website and that kind of changed everything for me. Because mm -hmm. suddenly I had an idea of who was buying the work and I realized like, you know, the stuff out of my apartment that I was packing and shipping started going everywhere, back to Germany, to Japan, Asia. That's like, really cool. Yeah, and, and it just sort of gave me a confidence in moving forward. You know, I was taking the money from the first toy and producing the next two or three. Mm -hmm. And um, it's not, you know, at that time, I'd have a thing that just sat on the site, and you'd get some orders, and I'd pack them and ship them. You were early to e-commerce. Yeah, definitely. It was, it was interesting. And then in 2006, a few years later, you opened a store that you called Original Fake in Japan. What motivated you to open a store? Did you have Keith Haring's 80s pop shop in mind? What, what were some of the influences there? You know, I had, I had done a lot of collaborations with different companies, and um, it seemed, it's like when just hearing you say from 2002, my website, to 2006, it seems very close, but at the time it seemed like a lifetime apart. Sure. And um, 
the shop was really just a way to create a home base for the projects I was making. You know, before this, I would do a collaboration with somebody, and it would release, you know, on their timeline, in their shops, and, you know, it would just sort of, like, roll out the way they saw fit. Mm -hmm. And in opening my own shop, I could just have, you know, all year round, a home base for people to come and, you know, view product and see product. And it's like having an exhibition that doesn't close. I could see why you had 40 or 50 trips over to Japan. Yeah, I mean, I, that, when I had the shop, I was going like every two months. I think that's kind of what burnt me out. Makes, makes a lot of sense. Rewinding a little bit, so in the year 2000, you did a gallery show, actually not too far from here on the Upper East Side, at a gallery called Magidson Fine Art. Um, a major artist spotted your talent, but you didn't view that show as a success. What? What, what was the story? No, it's not that I didn't view it as a success. I just, um, you know, I, I met a guy through my friend's father that was like, do a show, and came, and I put some pictures in his space. I didn't really know, you know, I had, it wasn't really, like, understanding galleries and how that could work and do's and don'ts. But, um, but yeah, at, at that time, you know, Jeff Koons came to the show, and he introduced the work to Dacus Janot, and... Um, Doc has bought two paintings, and you know I was very excited. I was like, "Oh, now I'm gonna, things are going to start." And um, you know, I, I think as a young artist, you're always looking for entry points, and it, it seems like a lot of brick walls. And I felt like, "Oh, here's a, here's an opening." And um, but then I, I I couldn't really get another show until 2008. Right. So after that, seemed like a home run to me. You know, I, I think eight at, years later, it's a long time. Yeah, at that time, I, I used to talk to gallerists if I would show them my work and. I think they didn't know what to do with me, you know, because I was really interested in, in all this commercial work, and mm -hmm. I felt like that was part of my work, and um, it made perfect sense to me, and it didn't to a lot of people. That's really interesting. So you think the hybrid role that you were taking made it harder for them to, to, to digest you in a way? Yeah, I, at the time, it definitely seemed like you can be a commercial artist or you can be a fine artist, but you have to, like, choose your lane, and, you, you know, one detracts from the other. Well, I'll congratulate you on proving them wrong. <laughs> I'm trying. We'll see. <laughs> in 2009, uh, excuse me, in 2012, actually, you had a float in the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade. How'd that happen? <laughs> they, they cold called me. You just mind your own business one day? Hi, yeah, this is Macy's. Like, We'd like to float who, you in our who? parade. Who? <laughs> no, um... No, I was just like when they, they, it was, it was a cold call invitation to do the Macy's parade. And I was on the phone. I, I was like, is this even a real person? <laughs> you know, and um, we were talking about it and they were talking about, you know, we like your work. We know you, you, you work a lot with existing characters and you're kind of, you know, we're uncertain if you're taking jabs at them or you're embracing them. And we kind of like that and we want to invite you to do a float in the parade. And I just thought, like, this is the best person I've, been, I've ever spoken to. <laughs> it was a good phone call. Um, yeah, it was a great it's phone a call, phone. And, and they were great to work with. And, um, you know, at the time, I thought doing an inflatable was cheating because, you know, I was used to working in the, these other materials. And I think doing this parade really opened my mind to the idea of, like, what an inflatable can do, how you can occupy a space or a moment. And so that, did, did you walk in the parade? Um, I did walk in the parade, but I... They asked me if I wanted to be, like, be on a float with it, and I was like, not a chance. <laughs> um, so I took, I took like a press badge, and I got to like run ahead of it and run behind. I like to take photos, so you know, I just acted like one of the several photographers running around taking photos. And it was great, because you get to hear like 
the crowd, you know, they'll be like applauding when they see SpongeBob or some other thing, and then it just goes silent. <laughs> it's just completely, no, no, it's really, it's, a, it's just like this, this total like, oh, Smurf, what is it? And, Different than Santa Claus. Yeah, so, so I, I found it, it was, pretty, it, was, it was a pretty good day. That is a great day. So, so looking back, was there a moment in your career, maybe it was this one, that you would call an inflection point where you said, you know, I think, I think this is really going to catch on. People are going like to my, like my work. You know, I've been naively like, optimistic my whole life. I feel like every sort of step that I've taken or opportunity I've had, I felt really super excited about it. Mm-hmm. So you always have these moments like, yeah, this is it. And, and then also you have like these insecurities of like, well, what does this equal? You know, is this, does this add up to something? I guess that's a part of so. what keeps you working as hard as you do. Yeah, I'm still waiting for that real, like... <laughs> Maybe tonight's like, the that night. That security blanket that just lands on me. <laughs> I, I think could, tonight's the night. I can feel comfortable in my skin. So, well, this should help. You have over 2.6 million followers on Instagram. Uh, one post about tonight's event generated over 35,000 likes. Uh, what role would you say social media is playing in your career right now? Well, first I could say about followers on Instagram. I mean, that, that could sound like a good number, but then you can click on like some girl doing yoga that has 14 million. <laughs> so then that, that immediately puts you right in your place. And you're like, girl okay, doing yoga. okay, let's just not talk about numbers. Um, but I, I enjoy social media. I love like, you know, I spend most of my time in the studio and home with my family and and I feel like that's like a chance to kind of just, you know, throw bottles into the ocean with messages and kind of see if, I don't know. Explain that, bottles into the ocean. No, I just feel like, you know, I just throw, you know, I'm not really good on comments. I don't really comment back much. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I like putting imagery out there and I like to, you know, it's a great way, you know, before, you know, say in the 90s, you'd meet somebody at a magazine and they'd be like, you know, we have 30,000 issues. Right. <laughs> And you'd be like, oh, you know, I'm so happy, thank you. This has really um, democratized it in a way. Yeah, but now at Instagram, it's like you don't, you know, you just sort of, you could, I can message something about tonight, and then, and then like somebody turns out. Well, I'm sure we could speak um, about that for another, another 30 minutes, but we've got a lot more of your career to cover. Fast forward to 2010, you had your first solo museum show at the Aldrich Museum in Connecticut, and they also produced a book about your work. How did that change your career trajectory? I th- I, well, I mean, that was, that was great. It was, it was, you know, working with the people at Aldrich um, and having that chance was, it was great to kind of pull work together and get to look at it together. But I think really having the book with Rizzoli um, is the first time, you know, before that I was working, say, you know, toy designer and working over in magazines and that kind of stuff and graffiti and street art and the painting and sculpture and mm-hmm. And you try to explain it to somebody, they'd be like lost and kind of walk away. Right. But having a book that had that all for the first time, I could really sort of be like, this is, and even for myself to kind of see through it and see like what, what I felt stronger about, what I felt. Yeah, organized everything. Yeah, exactly. Like and um, it kind of let me sort of get my head around things. It's a great book. I really recommend it. This is one of my, another one of my favorite images. Uh, the Simpsons is now the longest running scripted show on television. George H.W. Bush, I bet he's not quoted the Y a lot, once said, American families need to be more like the Waltons and less like the Simpsons. The Simpsons characters are a common trope in your work. 
and were featured in a lot of your early package paintings. So first of all, maybe you could explain what a package painting was and why that was important, and then maybe touch on The Simpsons a little bit. I mean, yeah, The Simpsons, that was for, you know, from like 2000, 2004, I made a few paintings. But um, really that came about because of the package paintings, because there was a show I was doing in, in Tokyo called Tokyo First, and um, I was just thinking about painting and sculpture and, you know, and going to Japan, I realized that there was, there was so many young kids following streetwear, following sneaker culture, and, you know, spending money on different things. You know, like, they'll, they'll buy a toy, they'll buy sneakers, but nobody wants to buy a drawing. They wouldn't know what to do with it or a painting. Mm-hmm. It's just sort of... And I always saw that as, like, you know, like, I'm obsessed with collecting those sorts of things. And I, I created this package painting as sort of a way of bringing painting and sculpture into one piece and speaking the language of, of that sort of collecting culture... And Simpsons, you know, just kind of came into it because I felt like, you know, they just speak to everyone. They, you know, you can be in different countries and you hear dope, and it you is, know, it is pervasive. That's, that's, they're everywhere. That's Homer. It's a universal so, image. Um, yeah, makes a lot of sense. Let's speak about your painting process a little bit. You start with an image in mind, and then how do we go from the image to a beautiful painting like this? You know, I work on and off the computer. I, I, you know, I make drawings. I bring them into the computer. A lot of times, paintings come together almost like collages. I mean, not really. That this is more straightforward. But um, in the newer work that I'm doing, you know, I just sort of I build them in the same way as someone would build a collage. And then, you know, I'll go downstairs and draw it out. And that's when I start to think about color. And at that, up until that point, it's all just like line art and composition and. And it's when after I draw it out that I, I sit in front of it and start to think about, you know, when, what colors go where and where do you place it. And, and, and you're very specific about your paint. You'll have them specially ordered for you, and you can do up to more than 10 layers sometimes of one. Yeah, I mean, it just, it just depends on, you know, the colors and, and how they take to the canvas. But I, I like to sort of, like, you know, work myself into to corners with, with different colors and see if I can bring it around and find a balance and sort of get the emotion that I want out of it. So as a style, hard edge painting typically means a flat, colorful surface with clear, sharp edges. I think of Frank Stell or Ellsworth, Ellsworth Kelly as early examples. Do you consider your painting as hard edge, abstract, figurative? Do you even think about those labels when you paint? Um, yeah, I pretty much I try to avoid all labels mm-hmm. for painting. I don't, you know, I don't feel like I ever want to fit into somebody else's shoes. Um, you know, I happen to paint really sort of hard edge. Everything that I paint is freehand. And, you know, it's kind of like when I sit in front of a canvas, that's really the picture Another that comes out. Another great example. So I'm, I'm not going to dwell on this, but I'd be remiss if I didn't at least bring it up. Uh, the market success for your art has been beyond remarkable. Earlier this year, one painting sold for nearly 15 million U.S. dollars uh, at Sotheby's in Hong Kong. How did that make you feel? How, how do you navigate that as an artist? I think stressful. I can imagine. Yeah. Um, no, it's so funny because everybody, you know, people just, they congratulate you and you're kind of like, what did I do? You know, <laughs> that painting was, was painted 12 years ago. And um, it's interesting. I mean, it's, it's, the art world's fascinating. There's so many different things about it that's interesting. And, and the market is its own thing and, you know, it doesn't take you into consideration. So I don't feel like it can... You know, I just pretty much try to be in the studio and make the work that I want to make. And for me, I feel successful like when the work is finished and I've been able to 
you know, bring a sculpture to fruition or bring, you know, finish a series of paintings. Um, what happens afterwards is, is really out of your hands as an artist, I think. And um, I guess the benefit of looking at other artists and seeing their trajectories, how it goes up and down, you know, you just, you know, if something goes up, it goes down. And mm -hmm. that's, that's sort of the life. So for other artists who might be here tonight, what advice might you share if they have work starting to come at auction and they get really nervous about it? It's out of your control. Just yeah. get, yeah. Just Worry about on. what you can. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. So tell um, us a little bit about your personal collection. These are more of your images I just wanted to share, but tell us about artwork that you collect by other artists. Do you collect artists who influence your career? Do you collect with the goal of supporting young artists? Do you interact with the artists you collect? Tell, tell us a little bit about that. I, it's pretty much like peers and heroes, and that's, that's it. There's not like... Peers a, and heroes, I like Yeah, that. it's not... Um, I, there's, no, there's no set rule. It's pretty eclectic who I collect. Um, you know, I, I tend to... You know, I love like a lot of Chicago images, and I also... You know, I grew up thinking like, why isn't graffiti? And, and I never see it in museums or in collections, and... You know, and I kind of, so in the back of my mind, I, I made it a point to start collecting that kind of work from the 70s and 80s, and hopefully, you know, it can, it can build something that can end up someplace, or... Do, do you think that may change, that there may be more institutional representation of some of those artists? No, it's definitely happening, and it's, it's good to see. I mean, like, Henry Chiffon has a show up at the Bronx Museum right now, and it's a great show. I mean, what he's done for graffiti is, it's priceless, you know. That's great. In, 2004, in 2013, excuse me, the MTV Awards were held in your backyard in Brooklyn, and you designed the actual award trophy and the arena setup. It included this 60-foot-tall inflatable that almost looked like it was chrome-plated. Can you tell us about how this came to be? And I understand you were a little bit controlling over the process for the trophies. I'm controlling about everything. <laughs> I mean, it's true, except for my relationship. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so, but, no, when they approached me, you know, they contacted the studio, and in my mind, I was like, why is MTV, what do they want? Um, and then and I was like, oh, I'd love to do a Moon Man, but, you know, who knows? And so the guy comes to the studio, and he has, like, a deck, you know, it's cool, I learned about decks. And people make a deck, it's pretty, it's weird when you see it, it ends yourself. But um, the first page was a Moon Man, like their moon man. And I was like, amazing. This is about, you know, so they asked me to design the trophy and then when, when I, you know, I convinced them that, you know, how to use my sculptor and my foundry to produce it. And um, when I came back with the first sculpt, they asked me if I wanted to design the stadium. And because so, they were happy. Yeah, so I, I said, you know, let me think about that. <laughs> and they left. And I was high five in my studios. <laughs> and, um, so then we designed the stadium, and I, well, I went back to them. I said, well, if I'm going to design the stadium, can I have input on all the, you know, all the visuals for the, for the award show? And um, it was great, because it was, it was a challenge on how do, you, how do you make an impactful stadium mm -hmm. that can load into a, to a space really fast, mm -hmm. you know, be there for a one-night event, and then load out. And then Big logistical operation. Yeah. So, I mean, this is what you're seeing is a giant inflatable that um, after we made the, the trophy... We just photographed it around, and then we printed it all black, whites, and grays. Wow. So it's not, it has no reflective quality. It's just printed like that. It's really beautiful. Yeah. Uh, changing mediums a little bit, in 2016, 
you had your first uh, show at the UK Museum, your first UK Museum show at the Yorkshire Sculpture Park that had this 30-foot tall wooden sculpture, which we're trying, there we have it. Small eye. <laughs> Why did you decide to work in this medium? It was a new medium for you at this show, right? Yeah, well, I had worked small, I'd worked in like toy scale and wood, and um, you know, I, I met this, this guy, Ernest Mormons, who, who's like really sort of an expert on, you know, he did all this stuff with Sotis and um, he's done a lot of great stuff, but so I was talking to, we knew we wanted to work together, but we didn't know what we wanted to work on. And then he helped me figure out how to engineer to do, you know, so the first piece that we did was this one, which was 10 meters tall. And we figured if we can do that, then we can do most everything else smaller. So you started with the big ones and then... Yeah, we started with the most sort of ambitious um, that we can do at the time. You know, he had this space in Giswil and this sculpture fits in it, you know, with its head tilted. So it looks like it's too big for the space. And um, so then we had this at Regent's Park for Freeze. They have a sculpture... Um, Outside the fair. Yeah, and Claire Lilly, who's the director of Yorkshire Sculpture Park, also curates that. Mm -hmm. And when I met her and she saw the piece in person and, you know... From that, she invited me to do Yorkshire Sculpture Park. And it was a great opportunity because I feel like everybody um, just associates me with like this urban context. And I think just working in wood material you know, gave the sculpture a vulnerability. And then putting it in the landscape in Yorkshire just gave it, you know, just sort of opened it up to a new territory. Did you feel badly it would get wet in that UK, UK rain? You know, I always worry about my sculptures outside. Like, I, I feel like they're probably bummed to be in the rain. So. <laughs> Don't blame them. Fast forward to 2018. Uh, you collaborated with Kim Jones, who is Dior's creative director for men, on his first men's show in Paris with a 70,000 flower installation. You've also partnered with Uniqlo, Supreme, Nike, and I'm sure I'm missing a few. How has the fashion world intersected with your world? You know, I've always been interested in using fashion as an outlet. Um, even in the like late 90s, I did stuff with Undercover in Japan. and um, It's just a great sort of way to exist in someone's life in a very sort of candid way, you know? I, I like the, the fact that you can be on the train and just sort of be in touch with, you know, a designer's work. Mm -hmm. So... And I mean, Kim is like super generous as a person. I, you know, I knew him before he was at Dior and we had spoken about working together, but nothing ever seemed right. Mm -hmm. And then um, when he, you know, was moving to Dior, he, he called me and told me, and, and then it was only a few months away that we had to figure out the, the show for the runway. And um, of Ho course- Hope you got a good seat. <laughs> yeah, I did. It was, it was good. But I mean, this, this all came together really in I think two months or something, maybe not even that long. Wow. Beautiful. And, and the images only get better from here. Let's see if we can get to that. Oop. We skipped one ahead. Uh -oh. Do you know how to go backwards? There we go. <laughs> In early 2019, earlier this year, you installed a 110-foot-long inflatable at the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Hall in Taipei. Why did you pick that location, and what was the local reaction there? I just thought, you know, this is the best location in Taipei. You can't really beat it. That, that was, I had never been there before. And, I, you know, we were looking at different opportunities. And I just felt like this was a really unbelievable spot if we can pull it off. And um, luckily, I, you know, I work with a friend of mine, SK, in Hong Kong with all these, you know, this, this series called Holiday. 
And um, so we've been making inflatables for different locations around the world. And I mean, yeah, I think the, speak, the picture says why it shows that. I, I can't imagine there are many art installations there with large inflatables. No, you know, it's, if it were up to me, it would be bronze. But we haven't found the person yet to do that. All right. so, but Everyone out there, if anyone can yeah. make those 110 foot bronze, let us know. Then in the spring of this year, you floated a 115-foot-long inflatable into the Hong Kong Harbor. Yeah. I can't even get my son to agree to put a new rubber ducky in the bathtub. How, how did you pull this off? This was, you know, it looks very, it looks very simple. Like, it's an inflatable, and you just throw it on the water. But under it is sure a 40-ton steel structure that, you know, kept it. Because in Victoria Harbor, the water's so choppy. And to keep the balloon, you know, to stay perfect and seem like it's floating above it, you need pretty much a ship under it. Wow. Not to mention all the machinery to constantly keep the, the piece inflated. Wow. Um, my favorite part of this project, I mean, I loved where it was, the final location, but, you know, we assembled it off-site and had it tugboated to its location. It's a cool ride. And getting all the footage and photos and stuff, wow. like going through Hong Kong and with the, the cityscape is really, I think, I mean, I don't know. Where, where were you during that ride? Were you on the tugboat? I wish. No, I forgot <laughs> where it, I don't know exactly where I was. I was probably stressing out making sure the photographers were getting good photos. Sounds about right. Sounds yeah. About right. I mean, I, I learned, like, I, that was one of the benefits of, of, like, you know, graffiti. When I was younger, I learned that the photo is really kind of what, you know, this same project, mm -hmm. if not photographed well, can only be spoken about, but you can't really... So we try to, when we do these, to, to get as much coverage as we can. And now you have 2.6 million photographers out there keeping an eye out for you. I mean, Instagram's been amazing for meeting photographers, honestly. You know, if I'm in a country like Doha, you know, I just met some new photographers out there. We had, we had a piece that just ended yesterday. And um, it's great because guys, you know, they're young and they're ambitious and they contact you and, and suddenly you're friends and, you know, you're hiring them to do other things. And that's great, yeah. that's great. I mean, you've got, you've got a great fan base, that's for sure. Thanks. We mentioned the National Gallery of Victoria earlier in Australia. Uh, they recently hosted a large show of your work and commissioned this bronze sculpture. Can you tell us a little bit about the show? I think you're heading back there in a few days. We'd love to hear a little bit more about it. No, I'm going back to Melbourne um, next week. But th this was a piece called Gone that um, they commissioned for their courtyard and then eventually it's a, it's a seven-meter-tall bronze, and um, after the show, it'll go to a, a permanent location for a new park that they're building. And the show consists of the last 25 years of work. Wow. So it's really the first time that I'm showing, like, the regular... Usually I start showing stuff, like, with the phone booths, just because that's the only tangible stuff I had. Mm -hmm. But this show includes, like, photographs of walls that I did with graffiti and, you know, black books that I had, and... That kind of work, which was fun, because I, I think in the beginning I was so conscious to keep that stuff out of shows because immediately, no matter what I make, I can I could do a sculpture in bronze like this, and somebody's like, graffiti sculpture. And I'm like, what are you looking at, yeah. you know? <laughs> so over time now, I, I feel like I've done enough other things that I can kind of bring that back into the fold. And, um, how, how, what goes into planning a show like that and the logistics in Cornish, I imagine? I mean, we worked on it for probably, it, probably yeah. almost two years. Two years, wow. Yeah, and just working with the curator there and um, just kind of, you know, you, you first establish the space that it's going to be in and 
then you start to think about the flow of timing. I, I like to not, you know, keep things chronological because I find often um, through different materials I return to imagery and so I like to show like the connections between you know, how a product can relate to a painting and vice versa. How much control and influence will you have over the installation of the show, the placement of works, or will you leave that to the museum curators? You know, I like to be involved as much as possible. I really love rooms. I love responding to architecture, and um, I definitely, for me, there's, you know, like I enjoy placing works, and I enjoy, like, you know, working on different sight lines. So. That's great. This past summer, you had an installation at Mount Fuji in Japan. This is a photo, I believe, from Sunrise? Yeah, this I is I thought it was Sunset, five, but it's Sunrise, right? Yeah, I think 5, maybe, 5 a.m. And you and some fans camped out right in front of the inflatable, is that right? I mean, we invited 2,000 people. <laughs> um, a few casual friends. Yeah, you know, we, we had a raffle where you can, you know, not just people I knew, but just general people can enter and... and come and camp and um, actually, so my friend Esku, who I mentioned earlier with this company, All Rights Reserved, first we just wanted to do something in front of Mount Fuji. Mm -hmm. And then we found this, first we were going to do it in water and then we found this location and it was a campsite. So we're like, let's do camping. You know, it started as a joke. And then suddenly we're thinking about, well, where are these people stay? <laughs> what do we feed them? And so it became this whole, you know, bigger project that um, was like, su super fun. Until it rained. It rained the whole day of the opening, and the whole <laughs> night, like poured. Like there couldn't be more water in the air. But, um, but yeah, that morning there was this shot, and then for most of the day you couldn't see the mountain. And then the next morning the mountain appeared. So, I mean, it's kind of, it was kind of amazing that you felt like it was a gift almost when the mountain came out. It's beautiful. So, and and yeah. clearly the photography is really important. Tell us a little bit about your team. It's clear this is a lot of work going on, a lot of projects. You always have 26 balls that you're juggling in the air. Uh, have you been able to find great people and attract really good talent to work with you? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I have a, my studio is very small. It's, it's 11 people total. That's maybe seven administrative for that are painting with me. And um, no, they've been great. And then also I've been very lucky in building relationships with foundries and you know, I tend to, if there's somebody that I work well with, I stick with them. And, you know, like the, the people, Metacom, who makes my toys, I met in 2002. And I pretty much don't work with anyone else because I trust them. Trust you is, know, and the, yeah, trust and it's is the, there. Yeah, it's the same thing. So if you find somebody that, that you trust, you try to do whatever you can to nurture that and hold on to that. And that can really apply to any different industry. Exactly, yeah. That's great. So... Uh, I know we have a lot of questions from the audience that I want to let, save time for, but as a last question for me, looking ahead to 2021, the Brooklyn Museum is going to be hosting the first survey of your work in your home city. Interestingly, the museum curators kept mentioning that other artists originally were directing them to focus on your work. How important is it to have this local show, this local support, given your global career, to now have something really right in your backyard? No, I mean, it's an honor. It's amazing. Um, I'm really looking forward to it. You know, my kids were taking classes there when they were little. It's a place that I frequent. Um, they're the first New York institution to acquire work. And, you know, I'm excited. I don't know. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. 
So now we have some questions from the audience that I'd like to switch to. So the first one, this is a great one. Who is on your proverbial Mount Rushmore of graffiti? Who are some of the artists who you really admire? Uh, whoever asked that, you're just going to make a, like a thousand other people really mad at me. That's true. <laughs> um, if I could say this without thinking, without holding me any, any you know, this is just as a quick thought. Only would, with friends tonight. Can the Mount Rushmore be several more heads? Um, <laughs> you, no, I mean, there's, there's, so many, there's so many heroes in graffiti. I would say, like, Lee Quinones is right at the top of the pyramid. Um, Dondi, Futura, Zephyr, Blade. Um, Great names. Yeah. Uh, this one comes from Benjamin, who's age 13. And he wants to know that when you were his age, did you know what you wanted to do with your life? And maybe you can come back a little bit to the early days of your career and deciding. Absolutely not. When I was 13, I didn't even think art was a, could be a profession. Um, you know, it's something I love doing, and I always thought that I would have to, like, have a job to subsidize what I was actually interested in doing. Mm -hmm. That's just sort of, you know, what I assumed. That's maybe a natural segue to the next question, and that is the art world can be a very difficult place to navigate. What advice would you share for a young artist uh, in the earlier days of their career? Uh, it's tough. I don't know. It's a, it's a weird world. <laughs> Run. Um, so, no, I think, you know, it's, it's all people. people. Like when you say the art world, the museum world, or any other world, you got to understand it's just people. And there's good people that you'll meet, and there's people that, that you probably won't want to hang out with. Mm -hmm. And um, you just sort of try to, try to you know, figure out who the good people are and, and interact with them. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, the next question is, uh, growing up uh, in Jersey City, tell us a little bit about the geography and where you would travel and, and, and your modes of transportation and, and how you got your start. Um, so the PATH train was a small you know, walk or skate from my house, which was, you know, I felt very fortunate that when I was little I was able to come to the city and like skate the Brooklyn Banks or go to Thomas Square Park or Washington Square Park, or anywhere downtown I wanted to go was in, you know, it's a dollar train ride or an easy squeeze through. And, <laughs> you know, I don't know, I really enjoyed growing up in Jersey City. It was like, for graffiti, it was a playground under the 1-9, you know, it was just sort of free-for-all. And um, great freight trains and billboards all right there. Do, do you think some of the development and building in New York has limited graffiti space? I know five points from different areas come, come no, to No, you know, I, I think, well, definitely. It just, But also growing in, up in Jersey City and always being obsessed, I was always obsessed with New York. I just wanted to be in New York. And I think having that outside perspective, you know, growing up here, I might not have had that sort of appreciation because I would have been here. Mm -hmm. So there was always this sort of mental drive of... Um, you know, when am I moving out? You know, I tried to move out in high school, lived here for a little bit, put my tail between my legs, went back home. Um, and then eventually, you know, the day after college, I moved into Lower East Side. Other people have started appropriating or, or even copying your work, and there has been some issues with copyright issues and fakes out there. Do you take that as flattery? Is it something that worries you? How do you, how do you think about that? I mean, that's, it's kind of conflicting. Um, if somebody's copying your work and they're saying it's, they're copying your work, that's, that's great. But if they're tricking other people and selling, you, selling people work that they believe was yours, 
then that's not cool. So that's that's... Uh, here, here, here's a fun one. Uh, what do you like to do in your free time, if, if you have any? Free time? <laughs> What's that? Yeah. No, if I have time, I want to be with, with my, my family, mostly. You, you've met many famous people and collaborated with many great brands in your work. How do you, how do you stay grounded? Have you ever been starstruck? Hmm. <laughs> starstruck. Uh, excuse me. Um, no, I don't know. You just, I mean, I'm, it's, it's great to meet, like, a lot, I get to, lucky that I get to meet a lot of talented people. Um, but yeah, usually there's the, there's the talent and the, the persona, and then there's the personality. And, you know, there's definitely people I wish I never met because <laughs> I was such a fan. And then, but, you know, so. Great. I, I don't think Starstruck's so good. That's fair. Well, I want to thank you again for being so generous with your time and so open with us tonight. Maybe we can have another round of applause for Cause. Sure. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92Y.org archives.